So I promised you this year we would spend more time talking about franchising. I'm staying good to my word. Today we're chatting with Mark Liso. He is uh, he's a franchising guru of sorts. Uh, I don't want to ruin it. It's a lot we're going to get to on this week's episode of Restaurant Strategy. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work with owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. Do you struggle with generating consistent, predictable 20% profits every single month? Then please set up a free call with one of our coaches. Uh, we'll get to learn more about you and your program, uh, your restaurant rather. You'll get to learn more about our program. You'll ask some questions. We'll see if you're a good fit for that program and we'll see where we go from there. The call is absolutely free and at the very least, you'll come away with some great value, things that you can put into play right away. Best way to get started to schedule that call is visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule the call is absolutely free, and that link is in the show notes. Now, we all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time plate costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip, and yes, that link is in the show notes. Now, my guest on today's show is a guy named Mark Liso. Mark is the Chief Development Officer at East Coast Wings and Grill. He knows a lot about franchising. I promised you we're going to have more conversations about franchising. So today, we're going to talk about uh, things on both the franchisor side. How do you know if you're ready to franchise and how do you get ready? And then on the franchisee side, if you're considering either launching your own brand or buying into a franchise, how do you uh, how, how do you tell uh, which is the right path for you? And if you decide to go the franchising route, what are some of the red flags you're going to you're going to look for. We're going to get into all of that over the course of this conversation. I'm thrilled to welcome Mark to the show. Mark, great to have you. Thanks, Chip. Great to be here. So, let's start by giving the listeners a little bit of context. Uh, talk about your background, um, both what came before East Coast Wings and how long you've been there, sort of what you've been involved with over the last couple of years um, while there at the company. Be happy to. Um, so I've been in the restaurant space 30 years. Um, I always uh, match that to my son who just turned 30 as well. Uh, but I've worked with six different brands. Started uh, with Olive Garden when it was owned by General Mills back in Minneapolis and uh, was being uh, was a part of the growth of Famous Days Barbecue back in 95. Uh, left after 14 years with 175 units and then went out to California to uh, help 
help a friend try to uh, reignite the Sizzle brand as well as Ruby's Diner and then spend some uh, uh, three years with Pizza Rev in the fast casual pizza space helping to grow that brand. Uh, I knew Sam Ballas, our CEO, uh, founder at East Coast Wings for 10 years prior to coming out here six years ago and uh, in the franchising circles. And so then uh, he placed a call one day and said, why don't you come on out? we got some great things going on, and, and would you be of interest? So I uh, started my venture. Uh, I always say I did the reverse Beverly Hillbillies of anybody that can remember that show, where I later <laughs> loaded up my U-Haul and went away from California and then came out to uh, North Carolina. So uh, uh, I've been able to uh, participate in the franchise circles for approximately 28 years, and uh, and now we, uh, we're actually doing a lot more th- here than just East Coast Wings. And if I may, we we also have a company called Zorbility where we do coaching and investment strategies for emerging franchise brands in the uh, uh, franchising and the the, uh, restaurant space. And we just launched one of our first uh, fast casual concepts uh, 18 months ago called uh, uh, MyFry, which is a slider hand-breaded tender and shake concept that we're going to eventually franchise as well. So there's a a few of us that are, that are aged in the industry and we want to give back to the industry. Yeah, for sure. As you, you know, if you, uh, you can't take it with you, if you take all that knowledge and experience with you and and don't spread it around, uh, what good is it worth? Talk to me about what you do on a day-to-day basis with the company. Well, with East Coast Wings, uh, day to day, it's uh, excuse me, it's it's all about the development. So it, it's recruiting franchisees. It's helping uh, once they're on board to look for the the appropriate site based on our site criteria, um, and then uh, and, and it's not just franchising uh, that I'm doing that with. It's our company owned and operated restaurants as well, and uh, so one, it, it's the East Coast Wings affect i still will check and spend some time at my fry and then uh like right now with uh Zorability, we have three different clients we're working with so we're, we walk them through everything of why you'd want to start franchising what makes sense and then how to build a business model that makes sense so it's uh I, I always tell my uh my friends at 65 i think i'm busier now than i ever have been but that's a good thing that that is a good thing. Um, talk to me. Answer that question for me. Uh, why might uh, why might one want to start franchising, and, and what are some of those early steps to, uh, to you know the, the barometer test to to know whether it's right for it and it's going to be a successful path. You know, the the great thing, Chip, is franchising was one of the best business models uh, for people that want to be their own entrepreneurs. And uh, it, it's it's when a organization has the intellectual capital and the proven experience to be able to assist and help a franchisee get in business, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great place to be. So if someone's thinking about franchising, if they already have a restaurant, um, you know, it, it's it's got to be a deep dive. Like, one, is it scalable and is it marketable? So is your product something that can interstate, move move across the country? Or if you want to be a super regional brand, how does that make sense? And then from a, a, a scalability side, do the numbers work? 
So when you look at your P&L and then you load it with a royalty and an ad fund, does it in casual dining get to that 12 to 15 percent NOI? Uh, in fast casual, does it get to that 15 to 20 percent NOI? So if you're uh, if you're making money at your restaurant and you're thinking about franchising and you're only doing about seven, eight, nine percent. Uh, it's not attractive to someone that wants to get into that space. So one, is it scalable from a P&L perspective? Is it marketable of what you're trying to sell and is it trend worthy? And then looking at all the aspects of what's the sales to investment ratio? What's my initial investment cost? Um, you know, how do I, <clears throat> how do I utilize marketing in all streams, whether it's social, whether it's traditional, uh, to drive guests to the building. So there's there's a lot of things to consider uh, in that franchising arena. Now, a lot of people want to do it because there's there's a lot of great advantages to it. You know, it's it's using another form of capital. It's uh, it, it's having that McDonald's effect, if you will, where instead of just one to one to one in growth, you're going one to three plus three in growth. Uh, and, and so you can leverage profitability for scalability in that franchising space. Um, a lot of disadvantages that you can lose control. You know, a founder sometimes says, I don't want to give up control of growing the brand. Um, you know, the, the intensification of capital and finding capital. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's always going to be the pressure of using other people's money to grow. So kind of the advantage, disadvantage of doing it, <clears throat> and that'll just have to uh, be a, a discussion with one hands with themselves if that makes sense to do it. Yeah, for sure. So talk to me, because uh, I spent a lot of time talking about profitability. I, as you said, you, you sort of led with profitability. It's it's the first sort of metric that's got to be there. I mean, rough, rough back of the napkin math, the uh, uh, concept's got to be, uh, before they franchise, somewhere between 22 to 28% NOI, so that it becomes attractive to a franchisee. You can say, hey, even after your, like you said, the royalty and the ad uh, up front, you're still going to be profitable at that 12, 15, 18% mark. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. So, uh, in, in looking at whatever the restaurant is, uh, specifically, uh, in, in this dialogue, you know, if you are in casual dining, yes, you've got to be close to that 18%. And then if I load, which is traditional 5% royalty, 2% ad fund, you know, even even eighteen percent, you're you're only at eleven. So yep. you've got to be up closer to that twenty percent. Same thing that happens in fast casual. You want to be in that fifteen to twenty percent fully loaded. So yes, you've got to be in that twenty five percentile, uh, taking yep. away the seven percent to land in that fifteen to twenty percent. So yeah, it's uh, you know we were working with a client that when we looked at their P and L they were doing uh, 9% and they wanted to franchise. And it's like, well, okay, throw the seven on there and you're doing two. How's that attractive? So yep. yeah, the, the, the casual dine, uh, most uh, companies are probably uh, in the eight to 10% range. Uh, but in order to franchise, you got to be in that higher range because one, uh, you've got debt service to consider. You've got uh, you know your rent structure to uh, to consider wherever the location is. 
And, uh, yeah, those are, those are always the challenges when you, uh, have people come up to you and say, Hey, I love this restaurant. I want a franchise. Can I franchise? So talk to me, because I'm right with you. I spend a lot of time, so I, I run a, a mastermind for independent operators, and a lot of them will come to me and say, hey, we really want to, the, the goal is to franchise. Um, that's really where we want to be in the next year. And they have 7 8 9%. And I said, no, no, we, we've got to get it over 20% before we can even have that conversation. So our goal right now uh, for the year that you're in this program is to focus on profitability. That's specifically what the program focuses on. Um, when... You're working with so through this uh, the subsidiary company when you're when you're vetting you know brands and all of that. How does that conversation go? Do you just sort of they come and say, hey, we want a franchise? You look at their books; it's eight percent NOI. You just sort of turn them around and say, go make it more profitable. Come back when you're at twenty two. How does that conversation go typically? Great question, Chip. Usually, it's uh, it's taking all the departments we call them pods. So finding out. You know, are you running rent structures at eight percent and uh, and total occupancy at ten percent? Is your food cost somewhere in the thirty thirty two percent? Is your labor sub thirty all in with nine forty ones included? So uh, then it it gets to be a point where you might say, you know, in order to make this work, we've got to reduce the box size too. So you know, no one really is doing except a few brands. You know, the four to five thousand square foot boxes. Anymore, I mean, with with the uh, third party or side door revenues right now happening in restaurants, uh, you you may have some empty seats in your restaurant if you get too big. So one of our guidance, and we actually did this with East Coast Wings. Actually, Sam Ballas, our CEO, said, "I'm going to take a risk and invest my own money into this," and. Um, and opened and moved the location, East Coast Wings, to a new location at sub-2,400 square feet. It was a, about 2,390 uh, with 14 tables, and that actually last year did <coughs> excuse me, 1.6 million net and profited uh, close to <coughs> excuse me, 180,000. So the point is we would look at a brand and say, what's your box size? Uh, what's your rent structure? Uh, how can you? How can we reduce food costing if that's an issue? Because then we pull in supply chain, we pull in menu ideation, we look at really how many SKUs you need on your menu. What do your dogs get rid of them? So again, I'm I'm kind of being very quick in in this. Uh, no, process. all this makes sense. You got you got a lot of insiders listening to this. It's the best part about the show is we can we can just really uh, dig into the the guts of this uh, without having to explain too much. Everybody knows what a dog and a star is like we get it i love it well and we're working with a a brand right now where it's defining that optimal square footage defining what the optimal seat size is it's using strength and supply chain to get a, a lower cost you know we we look at some mdas master uh, master distribution agreements and and they're making it somewhat prohibitive to even make any money to these brands. So it's like, can we renegotiate those? Uh, again, in this in this day and age, you look at the amount of labor or people on schedule. How do we reduce that so we have less bodies on the floor, not sacrificing get service by any means? And then uh, 
And then those are some of the, the, the scrubbing we do on the P&Ls so that we can look at do you have national contracts in place with, with your linen service, with any repair and maintenance, with a hood cleaning service, with a type of uh, equipment company, any of those things where we might be able to parlay into our umbrella in cost savings. Matter of fact, we are going through, as in East Coast Wings, a complete POS conversion. Um, you know, unfortunately, when Oracle bought Micros, it seemed to create some challenges within Micros as a POS system. And uh, we tried Symphony 1 and we tried Symphony 2, and we were having some challenges with those. So we went uh, and, and are converting to another POS system. So we've got a plan in place for that conversion. But on a foregoing basis, we're advising companies that are new to franchising. They need an enterprise management system, and we've got some uh, deals with some other POS companies that can help reduce and mitigate some of the costs, not only to the franchisor, but then the potential franchisee. Because keeping those development costs down uh, and showing a good return on investment, how many years does it take to pay back between three and five, better to be between three and four, and uh, and that makes it attractive then for someone to, to become a franchisee. Yeah. So what other steps then? Because again, uh, most of the listeners of this show are independent operators and uh, many of them uh, are successful. They've created a, sexu- a successful brand. It's been around for uh, several years. Uh, they're growing in revenue and, and they're thinking to themselves, hey, I, I, this is something I, I want to do. I think I can do this. You mentioned this earlier, but it, it goes beyond just having a profitable concept and, and all that. The other side is that, uh, you, like you talked about, the infrastructure, right? So um, maybe they go work with a company like yours to help them uh, figure it all out. Maybe they want to do it on their own. But that infrastructure can't be overstated. And I want you to speak a little bit to that because when you become a franchisor, you're suddenly not in the operation game anymore. You're in the franchising uh, game. And so... A lot of uh, restaurateurs, uh, a lot of restaurant owners are, are skilled operators, and they don't necessarily realize whether they're going to make a successful franchisor. So talk to me about some of the skill sets, some of the mindset that's required to flip that switch to go from being a great operator to a great franchisor. Great question. I think it's, it's, it's looking at, again, what the departments of a well-oiled uh, franchising organization has in place. You're going to have an ops team, an IT team, a training department, a marketing department, a supply chain, and menu ideation or culinary involved. There's going to be, um, you know, your uh, your legal and FDD as far as having the document exposure. Uh, so, what the 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 strategy is to look at growth and then create a manpower uh, waterfall effect, if you will. Uh, how many operators do you need to oversight so many franchisees? And then you drop those in. And when do you need training? Do you have memorialized training manuals, not only from a opening perspective, but an ongoing perspective. And oh, by the way, what's your training manual that's memorialized for the franchisee or their uh, operator uh, to train with? So it's not just, hey, follow me around the restaurant, no disrespect, but you know, that sometimes happens to here's, here's the agenda for your training days. Here's the validation to achieve. And then when we come to uh, help assist you in 
training your employees in your new restaurant. How many does, days does that look like? What is the agenda? Uh, how, how do we get validation of your staff? Uh, highly important as, as well. And then from a marketing perspective, you go into a new, new uh, territory and how do you introduce the brand and then what are the differentiators to the brand? You know, one of the things with East Coast Wings is we have uh, 50 flavors and seven heat indexes. So you can customize your own wing. If you want a Caribbean jerk with a mild, you can get that, you know. And so it's important to be able to differentiate to the consumer and how do you do that far enough in advance. So it really becomes a matter of growth, revenue stream, and when you drop the, the infrastructure of manpower in place then to support the franchisees. Because unilevel yeah. economic, that has got to be the culture of your organization. It's, it, it, everybody in every department has to understand the profitability of the franchisee is so critical in the success for the brand. Because here's three things, Chris. Franchising has three pillars. One, unilevel economics. Two, franchisee validation. And if you have franchisee validation, you don't have to have a sales team because your franchisees will sell it by themselves. And then three, when do you become royalty sufficient? And those are the top three pillars that one would evaluate in how they measure themselves as they grow in the franchise space. I love it. So you started, uh, and I love everything you said there, uh, we're in complete alignment. At the beginning, you said you were talking about the infrastructure that sort of needs to be in place, an ops team, a marketing team, sort of, uh, you know, a, a legal team in place, HR, IT, all of this. That's at least six people and really probably six depart five or six departments with, with multiple people in there. I, I, t I speak to a lot of people, and I wonder if you can dig a little bit deeper here, but I, I speak to a lot of people who, again, have a successful brand, and maybe they've got three or four locations, and they say, hey, we're really ready to franchise. And in some ways, they, they might be right. But then the other piece to this, so the profitability, the differentiators, right, making sure that it's a marketable concept. You can explain to a market why they should come here versus somewhere else, you know, w what sets it apart. But then just a sheer, a sheer numbers game, there's just infrastructure that your franchisees will require um, if you're charging them 5 6% plus 2% for marketing or ads. Talk to me about how you begin to make that jump because that sounds like million dollars in, in salary over the course of, you know, a month. You've got you to take this huge jump. Is it, is it really like that? Talk to me about how a young brand does that jump. So there's, um, so there's third-party third party companies, you know, from an HR perspective. Again, the only HR perspective the franchisor has to be concerned about is, is their company. Yep. Uh, the franchisee, you would give guidance in, in how they set it up. And depending if it's a sophisticated franchisee or non-sophisticated, uh, sophisticated being a already multi-unit, multi-concept or multi-unit, single-concept franchisee, and then the unsophisticated being never had any re uh, experience in the restaurant space. So part of that is, again, having the the approved vendors, the approved suppliers, where you could say to the franchisee, here's an HR company that you can third-party with that can help to mitigate the need to have 
an employee, uh, they're basically at 1099, and you're going to be able to get the HR uh, needs met. From a training perspective, it's incumbent upon the franchisor to protect the marks. So anything we're writing and training or any ops manuals or any um, uh, food binders, we're, we're protecting the marks. So someone's got to write those, and a lot of times the operator that is currently owning a, a restaurant either has them or can put those in place. So there's a little extra work to be done, no doubt. Um, the the other flip to this is getting your legal documents prepared, the franchise disclosure document. There are some companies that, you know, or I should say, you can, we can give or many people can give guidance to get a basic one done, a template done. You don't have to spend the $350 an hour attorney fee to do it. You know, you could find someone that might be two two fifty, dollars uh, so that you can mitigate some of your initial costs. Um, so, Part of that is, uh, in a uh, chip, is is de <clears throat> determining what you have in place, what you can do, and then as you grow, how do you backfill into a uh, <clears throat> a manpower relief, if you will? Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. But at the at the you know the bottom line there though is it's still an investment. It's still it's still a big undertaking. And, and again, you go from being an operator. Where you got cooks and servers and hosts and bartenders, and you go to uh, being in uh, a franchisor, which is where you've got an IT department, a marketing department, a, uh, an HR. Even if you're outsourcing your legal, even if you're outsourcing your HR, things like that. Like you said, mm -hmm. um, you still it's a, it's a set of different departments. It's not back of house, front of house. It's suddenly uh, you're you're a bigger company than maybe. And I I, I speak with a lot of people who have told me that they sort of underestimated that, that they didn't realize. And, and I've spoken to a couple of people who just got there and they realized they didn't like that. They thought it was going to be an easy way to grow the brand. Like you said, not just one to one, but one to three to five to 10 to 20, uh, because you're leveraging other people's capital. But they didn't realize that they were no longer in the restaurant business anymore. They were, they were in the franchising business and they realized this isn't really what I set out to do, and um, nah, I don't like it. And in some cases, I'm not even really that good at this. Uh, I was really good at the other thing. Uh, I'm not that good at this. And so how do you, do you have those conversations with potential uh, brands and, and operators who are turning into franchisors? Absolutely. And we've done the same thing with uh, East Coast Swings, and we're doing it with uh, our other clients, is you know, we put together a five-year plan so they can see what that looks like. And here's the unit growth per year, and here's your existing units, and what does that look like in revenue stream? Uh, what does that look like in franchise fee? What does that look like in revenue stream off royalty based on your franchise units sold? And then when you start to look at the five-year plan, it gives you a better sight line on when do I bring those people on board, the infrastructure of, ca of uh, the intellectual capital to help me grow the, grow the business. I think the, the flip side is always... I've got a brand. I'm excited. Someone says I want a franchise. As a Zor, you take that uh, franchise fee in, whether it's thirty-five, forty thousand, and you love it, and you put it in the bank, and and you forget that. Well, wait a minute. I got to build the structure and the support with that. Uh, I know Jimmy John has always said that. Uh, you know, he got enamored by taking the franchise fee until he realized that what gives sustainability is the royalty stream. So, if you then are building the infrastructure to support the franchisee, then the royalty stream 
takes care of your profitability. And that's part of the third pillar. When do I get royalty sufficient? And, you know, the fee is to help you, franchisee, get into business. So <clears throat> I'm going to, all the site selection, all the phone calls, all the, you come here to train, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from a training fee perspective, not uh, paying for your lodging and travel, obviously. But uh, once the, the Zor thinks that way, then it's like, how do I get you into business and be successful? And we've seen a lot of brands that they get well over their ski tips. You know, they're selling the state of Texas. They're selling yep. 30, 40 <laughs> deals in <clears throat> California, and they're based on the East Coast, and they have no supply chain or distribution efficiencies. So, you know, it's just a recipe for uh, unfortunate collapse of, of a franchisee, which... An emerging franchise brand cannot afford to have lawsuits or closures because that's red flags that say we didn't do our homework well enough. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is a, that is a big deal in the beginning. You're when you start franchising, um, your customer is no longer your customer. Your customer is the franchisee. You've got to keep them happy. You got to keep them profitable. You got to keep them supported in in all of that. So then let's switch gears here because, we, okay, we spent a lot of time talking about from the franchisor side. Talk about the franchisee. So, hey, somebody's been in the business for a while and they say, hey, I really want to own my own place. And they say they've got choices, right? They can either go open their own concept, you know, come up with something from the ground up or they there are now no shortages of uh, franchises that you can buy into. How do you, when you have that conversation or when you think about it, when people come to you maybe, um, how do you talk to them about whether this is going to be a good fit or not, or whether they should go one direction or the other? Great question. I think it's it's where they want to land. If they want to be in the food space, let's have a conversation. If you don't want to be in the food space, obviously, you know, it's, it's a no-brainer. I think challenges with the food space are you don't see the profitability for a period of time. So whether I'm fast, casual, full service – casual you know it can be by the time you sign the franchise agreement to find real estate if you haven't found real estate yet that could be shoot in some cases it could be eight months it could be six months um we had an episode where it took a year and two months to find real estate for our one franchisee where another franchisee signed the agreement only because he had real estate so you know it, it's that can take some time and then when you look at the uh, plan uh, creation and then the permitting process, construction process. For some, it's a little hard to say, well, I'm out here 14, 15, 18 months before I start seeing profitability. As long as they know that and they're in uh, communicated that, if they still want to stay in the food space, then they, they can work that out. I think the other thing is, do you want to be in a fast casual or do you want to be in a full service? You know, full service may be a little bit high, uh, full service casual, a little higher investment, but you can do higher sales volume and then hit higher profitabilities. Where fast casual, a little slower, a lower sales volume, and you might need two of those or three of those to, to meet what you do in, uh, in full service. So I think for the, the person that's saying they're thinking about, you know, uh, franchising, uh, the, the other is, if you make that selection now in, in the food space, the other is to vet heavily the Zor. You know, does the Zor have the intellectual capacity 
to be able to support you and the brand? And does the intellectual capital met, match your business acumen? So if you do or, or that matches, then the next steps uh, go into play. And, you know, I think the important thing, I've said it before and, and uh, continue to say it, if I'm not obsessing about your profitability franchisee, so if you're checking or vetting a brand and you don't hear the franchisor talk about unit-level economics and profitability and obsessing about profitability, then that would be a red flag. Um, I yep. remember, I don't know, 28 years ago when a, where royalties used to be paid by check instead of an ACH draw, and a franchisee said to me, I write on the front of the check, you write in the back. Let me be as happy writing on the front as you are on the back. And the only way that can happen is if they feel their profitability is where it needs to be. Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Great restaurants are built by great teams, and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, to hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. From back of house to front of house, house uh, managers, franchise owners, and even larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like POS and payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy Podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using Seven Shifts today. Go, you will find that link in the show notes. Yeah. Talk to me about other red flags. Uh, what should people be aware of? They say, hey, they made the decision. Uh, okay, I'm going to buy into a franchise. I think that's a better, I'm going to get my feet wet in, in, in that way. Maybe eventually I'll make my own concept. But as you're going and vetting the different franchises that you could buy into, uh, what are some of the other red flags that, uh, that you think people should be aware of? I think one is, it, you know, obviously they're going to have the franchise disclosure document, you know, which is a, a, a thick read. But I think the important thing is, one, has there been any bank, uh, bankruptcies? Two, any lawsuits? You know, and then obviously um, as a Zor, you have to disclose all those. And that way there's a, the, the potential candidate or the candidate has the full view of what's happening from a, a legal perspective. Item seven of the FDD is all the initial investment costs. So looking at, again, where's the return on my investment? What's my year payback? So if I'm if I'm spending six hundred thousand and I'm making two hundred thousand profit, basic math, I get you know a three three year payback. Uh, that's pretty solid. And then um, uh, the the other flag would be looking at uh, item nineteen, which is the financial performance representation, and understanding through that. What what is the profitability that can be disclosed to me, and is it worthwhile? And then the fourth, really, being item twenty, which is uh, a a spreadsheet of all the restaurants that have been open, closed, or transferred, and ensuring that that the the um, 
continuity rate is high. So the it being in the 80 percentile or higher continuity rate, meaning you haven't lost any franchisees due to closures or bankruptcies themselves. Yeah, for sure. What else, what other considerations? Because uh, franchising, um, uh, quite honestly, isn't my background. It's not, I haven't spent really time in that world. So what else... What else should a f uh, potential franchisee be considering, thinking about coming to the table with? Um, I guess I'm asking, wh what am I not asking? What, what, what should people be aware of? You're certainly in this world much more than I am. Well, I think we've hit on the, the majority of it. I think the, the other thing is that a franchise candidate will always come to a discovery day. And in that discovery day, it really is the, the franchise, the candidate, meeting the team and the team meeting the candidate to see if it's a right fit. And the importance is you're signing a 10-year franchise agreement. So it's like a 10-year marriage. So you better be able to at least get along with the people that you're going to be paying a royalty to and vice versa that you're going to be supporting in the process. <clears throat> we always ask that a franchisee be coachable. And, you know, the, the, Many of our franchisees at East Coast Wings, of our 18, only two have had restaurant experience before. Uh, and that's how Sam Ballas founded this, giving people the opportunity to be franchisees. Uh, but they have to be coachable because what they don't know, they don't know. And at least we, we've been there and we can help them uh, do that. So so the flag, uh, additional flags, are one, it's just got to be a good fit. And then... And then call the franchisees that are listed in the FDD. Call every one of them uh, to ensure that you're getting the right messaging and validation from them. See, as a Zor, I can't tell you call this one, this one, this one, because that's an earnings claim. So call as many as you can to get the validation from the Zs that the Zor is doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about... Um how do you tell whether someone is coachable or not? And I'm asking this question probably more uh, selfishly than anything as, as a restaurant coach. Um, how, do you, how do you think about that as you're sort of feeling out the relationship, engaging whether you think it's going to be a positive uh, relationship? It, it really, the, the discovery day is a great day. And, and, you know, unfortunately during COVID, many of those turned into a Zoom call discovery day. But it, being able to have that face-to-face -face time, have that conversation, watch the body language. You know, we look at red flags on our side like, well, can I change the menu when I want? Or can I change the colors? When I, or can I put a different motif up in the restaurant? Then we start looking at that saying, well, do you really want to franchise the brand that has a proven track record and intellectual capital in place? Or are you just looking something to open in your community and you want to make it uh, East, Mark's East Coast Swings, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I think part of it is is the ability during the one-on-one -on -one session to listen, observe, uh, get examples of them in their coaching arena, developing of people, understanding P&Ls. Uh, a lot of that is vetted in the first initial phases as well before discovery day. But those, those are big uh, 
those are big clues. And and we've got we've got history. We can give examples of of franchisees who were on the verge of losing their house, uh, losing their marriage because they wanted to do it their way. And all of a sudden, it was like a snap occurred. They became coachable and and upshot the sales involvement, and then the. Uh, and their profitability. So we've got enough stories where we can at least create an analogy with them uh, to see how they respond to all that. And what happens if you get past Discovery Day and you get further down the line and you go, oh, oh, this isn't, there's, there, we didn't realize there's stuff we didn't catch. We're, we're good at sniffing this stuff out, but we're not. How do you get them back on track? How do you guide them back onto where you need to do it or how, I don't know if you can think back to some of your own experiences oh yeah you know I had a, a very dear friend that that was in the franchise business consultant position years ago when we were both in the same place and he said there's three things that you do with your franchisee you know one you're the biggest cheerleader you're the biggest advocate but you have to dispense tough love when needed and uh, we see that frequently especially when unsophisticated franchisees get into the space and they start doing things a little bit different only because they don't know anything different and uh, they're under pressure under stress of opening a restaurant uh, or if it's in the initial development stage with construction and saying oh I can find a sub that can do that cheaper and then pulling them back in uh, by saying well that's not the right finish that's not the right flooring so you're gonna have to tear that up and do it again so I mean that that's the tough love that says we have marks that are registered and, and we're protecting our marks. The franchisee owns two things, the assets and the franchise agreement. Everything else the Zor owns. So it's incumbent upon us and to even keep an arm's length away from the NLRB by saying that we're you're not an employee of ours, but we're protecting our marks. And so this is how you have to have the standardization. Um, and that really becomes the ability of whoever the franchise coach is. Because as we know, franchising is about influence and getting the same result as if they work for you as an employee where you can right. say fear of loss of job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, – East Coast Wings. Uh, before we hit record, uh, we were talking about how you guys have been franchising for 15 years and you are, quote unquote, only at 34 locations, which uh, this day and age with all the VC money thrown around and, and private equity and people want to go really big, right? I want to I want to have 100 locations in the next five years. You guys have been much more methodical um, about it. So tell me how as a company, you guys think about it. And now that this is, uh, you're in the chair, so to speak, tell me how you personally think about that growth. You know, great, great question, because we all know the data shows that any restaurant pipeline uh, announcement, about 30% of those actually get developed. And uh, it's nice for private equity to see the, the, the restaurants in a pipeline if they want to purchase because the valuation of the company goes up. But we really have, again, uh, that mantra that we're driven by unit-level economics. Actually, that's registered, driven by unit-level economics. And it all goes back to we obsess about the franchisees 
profitability. And so we want to ensure that we do it right from the get-go. Don't forget about them because we're off opening another restaurant or another restaurant to have them feel like they're getting the attention that we sold to them in the beginning in the recruitment process, that they're, they're feeling that their franchisor is protecting their investment that they hope to get generational wealth through. So our strategy has always been the right selection of real estate, the right um, coaching, education, opening, and then sustainment. We do a a six-week, sixteen-week uh, normalizing schedule where we work with the franchisee after they've opened their restaurant to help them with reducing their food, reducing their labor, labor, driving their sales, uh, still effectively marketing in their 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 uh, area to be able to be brand identified. But it's just not a dump and run. You can't do that. And once we feel like they've achieved that, then we can pull back a little bit uh, from being there uh, all the time. But we still do a lot of visitation with them. So, uh, and the, the other the other part to that too, uh, Chip, is as you grow, you have to have multiple layers in place. And so the organization can get quite large over time. And, you know, if one wants to be a national, regional, or super regional brand, that Zor has got to make that decision. Talk to me about, and this this has less to do with franchising per se. I want to step out of this, but I want to talk about marketing. Um, just in a sheer 30,000 foot view perspective, again, not necessarily uh, from the East Coast wings perspective, although that naturally will come out because you are you and you work where you work. You've introduced your brand in a bunch of different markets and often new markets as you continue to expand uh, the footprint. Um, beyond just the North Carolina area. Talk to me about what you think makes a successful marketing strategy for someone coming, bringing any brand into a market for the first time. And, and, and the interesting thing is how that's changed over time, you know, and not only from pricing of radio that you could get years ago cheaper, outdoor boards at a different price, you know, and now we're playing so much more in the social media strategy. Um, and it, the One of the things that, that is effective for any brand is to start teasing the marketplace with social media. So, you know, the, the Zor the franchisor should control all the platforms. So the franchisor controls Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, but there can be a localized Facebook page for the franchisee. Um, that way there's, there's um, controls, if you will, put in place so you don't have a franchisee using social media that wouldn't be within your boundaries of, of marketing. So one, it, it's starting to tease the market with, with uh, the branding and then using some of the boosting capabilities to, to get a further reach. Obviously, you know, just the, the signage on the building as fast as you can get, and then you know, starting to do the basic stuff of join chamber of commerce, but start going out and meeting the community. You know, one of the things that that we talk about and all the brands I've talked about is community involvement. So it, it's making sure that you find the the sports teams, 
that you potentially can sponsor or you can put a, a banner out in a little league baseball team or starting to do the things ahead of time because then once you open the doors then uh then you've got a whole nother strategy of what we call street teaming some call it guerrilla marketing where you're taking your product out to businesses and surprising them with some food and, and menu and shashatsky that that uh, draws them into your unit you know what's changed too chip is that you know pre-pandemic we always looked at daytime work population and to be successful in the restaurant space you have to have a strong lunch business you can't you can't be just nights and weekends so we would look for at least in major markets a 10,000 uh, daytime work pop in a one mile ring 20 and a two 30 and a three but now with many people working from home that even changes the real estate structure uh, yep. somewhat and strategy the other thing from marketing, so, so keeping a, a line of thought, so it's also then, you know, a marketing to households, whether we do some old traditional drops, you know, when bringing back some of the, some of the, uh, like a, a valve pack, so to speak. Um, but it, it's also once you um, gain traction of having your restaurant open, a loyalty program where you already have a consumer base that you can reach. So, you know, email blasts or promotional blasts to that, to that consumer that's your loyal loyalty uh, member is, is highly important. Um, yeah. And there's other things we can do. Uh, one of the things that one of the, two of the brands I worked with, we would always do a consumer food focus group tasting. So bi-weekly, we would invite um, uh, patrons through either the social media strategy or table tents with a QR code to say we're tasting food, four food items and we want you to come in, taste them, and then rate them so that they become a part of the food uh, focus group where some of those menu items uh, find their way on the menu uh, so that there's some type of commitment by the the consumer so uh, brushing over this lightly uh, you know it, it's really looking at what the what the geographies are and then how do we uh, get that guest to the front door because we used to say guests to the get their butts in the seat we say now get them to the front door because ops has got to take them to the front door and then take care of them once they're in. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a really good I think it's a really good overview. How do you feel about um, uh, about text messaging, SMS? Do you guys have SMS? Do you collect phone numbers and use them for with the brand? Know, we've talked about it in a couple of the brands I've worked with, and the, it's not. Uh, it's relatively new, um, but we just haven't really jumped on that that uh, yet. You know, we've used some geofencing. Um, we we've yep. used some uh, that that aspect to try to attract people in, but we haven't done the texting. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and do you guys have your own app? How do you feel about that? You know, uh, we have an app. I, I think my uh, 
my impression of many apps is they're not used as often as the data shows that consumers go online uh, with their laptop or their desktop to you know order their food but uh, but we have one and and uh, you know one of the things we've done with our consumer website is really made it e-commerce friendly so that you can get to your location get your order place it and go you know, sometimes I think the value of having an app is just the ability to send push notifications yeah. so that people will, it'll just, you know, it's better than a text, better than an email, it just sort of pops up on their notifications um, ticker, you know, on their on the yeah. front of their iPhone that I think sometimes that's worth its weight in gold because it's one more way uh, to, to reach the consumer and they Absolutely. can certainly disable them if they if they want to, but uh, many, many people don't, maybe many people just use it, uh, leave it automatically on. It, however, we get guests to come to the door, you yep. know. Yeah, that's well, that's the, why that's why I bring up uh, some of this stuff. Um, yeah. Talk to me about some of the social media. I know you said boosting ads and stuff. I, I want to drill down a little bit here because I know every franchise is different. So you guys um, handle manage the major. Um, you handle the major, like the mothership accounts for Facebook, yeah. Instagram, and Twitter. Will you run ads? consistently or do you just sort of run them from time to time and then my second part of that question is then at the individual level at the store level you let them create their own facebook instagram and twitter for that local store did i understand that right um we don't except for a facebook page um as a franchisor we control the platforms of instagram twitter and facebook um But what we've had, what we've put in place, Chip, is we work with a company that we have a catalog of um, assets. So a franchisee could go through this company, grab some assets, design an ad for their Facebook localized page. That's sent up to our marketing department and either approve it or if it's not, a call goes out and say, hey, you can't use Super Bowl. You can only say big game, you know, things on that order. Uh, And then once we push it down, then they can run it in their marketplace. So they have the capability of doing that, yes. But only a localized Facebook page, not a a separate Instagram page for it. Correct. Interesting. Going back to, we'll put out branding uh, at least four times a week on Instagram and Facebook. And a lot of it is assets of food or or specialized day. You know, with East Coast Wings uh, on the 29th of July is the National Chicken Wing Day. So we have a whole social media strategy, in-store strategy. Uh, We're having uh, a... um, uh, a writer from QSR magazine come in to do the seven uh, index heat challenge. So that will then all be out on social media as well. Gotcha. But now you're talking about organic posting, not necessarily a social ad strategy. Cause I want to drill down and I want to better understand um, how you guys utilize social media advertising. Do you run ads just sort of at the regional level or will you run it at the market level, driving people towards, uh, back to the, I guess the mother, the mothership, the main website where they can, uh, order, order a line there. How do you guys think about that? So from the Instagram, Twitter perspective, we, we drive that down to those accounts, um, Instagram at least four times a week. And 
and we can and we do different incentive programs along the way as well with it. It can be just assets uh, <clears throat> like having a, an outdoor board, you know, in, in the the uh, in the Instagram world. Um, we do and periodically will run and track then like a a Facebook or Instagram page. <coughs> excuse me, that'll say click to order. And then what we can do is follow their journey. Can we see, uh, <coughs> excuse me, what we've, what we've put out in pay, uh, in advertorial and see what we're getting in return. So we've done yep. that as well too. The other thing, you know, even from our, um, loyalty program you know we'll send and send out um not only messaging but uh we 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 run off the um uh the dollar value and you know the 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 uh purchase uh, a one time two time three time so we can utilize that not only in uh, a special event but then we can also um use it in a um uh, if we want to get increased sales toward the end of a, a month and we're not going to tell the guests and we're going to, we're going to guise it in something, you know, to try to drive that sale. Um, we'll use, we'll use social media. We just did this with, uh, <coughs> we awarded a, uh, a person that we had top three candidates of picking the new wing flavor. And, uh, so we, uh, use social media uh, to promote that and then our winner we just uh, uh, posted and then we'll send it out on social media as well so we use a variety of ways but as you know chip unless i have a click to call or a click to something i can't track that journey and i don't know if the social media is actually driving anything uh, unless i specifically which we've done in the past uh, when chicken wing prices were high Everything was promotion about the burgers. Now we saw an increase mm -hmm. in burger sales, but we didn't know if that was just a transfer for someone that was already a dine-in yep. guest with us, yep. or if it was new acquisition. And that's and I got to tell you, this is uh, you just sort of made my point for me. This is uh, the point that I make with a lot of my clients now, and uh, I certainly bang that drum on this show quite a bit. Is that if there's anything we have now that we didn't have in the last 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 years? Um, is that everything's trackable in the digital landscape. And if we're not utilizing, uh, I mean, you know, Facebook is not a, it's not a social media platform. Yeah. I can go on and see my mom's post or my brother's this or my friends that, but really it's the most sophisticated advertising platform that's ever been created. Yep. And I always tell my clients, if we're not utilizing it for that, if we're not utilizing the thing that it was made to do, the thing that it does better than anything else, then we're losing the greatest uh, value of it that, you know, the organic posting that we post is great just to keep sort of the brand alive and in the, in the, you know, the common consciousness, but we, there's significant data that shows on average, only about two to 3% of your existing followers will ever see what you post. Right. Um, so we're certainly not reaching the majority of them, let alone anyone else. So uh, for me, it's the, the name of the game is advertising. I mean, uh, me for my business, for the other restaurants that I've done marketing for, and certainly with the clients, it's something that I coach them over and over and over about. Uh, and because now we can, if we say click to order, you know, call now, we can trace that and we can say, hey, I spent that was, you know, $4 a click, but it generated a $67 order. I can see the exact ROI on that uh, on that ad for sure. It's uh, it's better than it's ever been before. Uh, 
any time in history. So uh, if we're not taking advantage of that, we're missing something really great. Well, and I think the the challenge, and I agree, uh, and pre-pandemic, we used a lot of that so that we could see how much dollar we spent for the dollar return, and it just made sense. And then once the pandemic hit, we re- we kind of went away, well, we kind of, we did go away from it because we were seeing just an increase in sales anyway, you know, from at least yep. East Coast Wings, because Wings traveled well, and um and when we had a shutdown of dining rooms, you know, we were already set up for that side door. You were the, revenue. You were the recipient of the yeah, the, the side door revenue, yeah, for sure. And, and so now, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we've used a little bit more of it, but we've seen that um, that that we're still getting a lot of that side door revenue. Here's the interesting thing: East Coast Wings did pre-pandemic twenty six percent side door. We are still as a brand blended 42% side door. And, and you define side door as third party delivery apps? Third party delivery, call in and pick up, uh, a third party delivery app, go in and get it versus having it delivered. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, I mean, there's and now it's funny. I'm urging all of my clients to really break that down even further because we really have to understand how much is in person, how much came in through the call center, how much came in through the website, and then how much came in through the third party delivery apps. We need a much better sense of exactly what the percentage of the pie is that's, uh, that's finding you from other, from other sources. Well, and I think there's the, the, what I had mentioned earlier in the, in the, uh, podcast is having an enterprise management POS system that breaks all those things down so you know yep. exactly where those are coming from. And, yep. uh, you know, the integration into your POS system so when that third party delivery or uh, online order comes in, it drives right into your POS and, and prints that. Uh, ticket right to the kitchen, whether it's paper or whether it's KDS. Um, yeah, for sure. That's got to. Now, I mean, now it's just it has to. And and it is evaluating uh, what percent. You know, it's interesting because pre-pandemic, we were thinking we were going to take a stand like many restaurants that said, we're not doing third-party delivery. You know, <laughs> it, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, they they got the uh, the uh, what do you call them? The, the heart resuscitation. And now they're back off and running and they're strong as ever, which still in this day and age throws me for a loop because of the money that you pay. And don't get me 100%. wrong. I'm okay. Because having food delivered to you, that's your favorite restaurant food. And, uh, but I guess part of that is the increase in grocery price. So there we yep. have it. Well, at the end of the day, People are willing to pay for convenience, and yeah. I would say with the consumer uh, on the third-party delivery apps, of which I am one, um, they pay in two key ways. Number one, more money, and they pay in a substandard uh, dining experience. I mean, it's it, the food is not as good at home when it travels 20 minutes. Um, it's not as good there as it is at the restaurant. We all know it, and right. it's cheaper if you go to the restaurant. It's better and cheaper if you go to the restaurant. And yet, and yet, we're working late. It's busy. We're getting home from soccer with the kids late. And it's just, we can order it on our way home. And it sort of lands at home exactly when exactly when we get it home. So yeah. I always say it's really telling that if, if we could create something more compelling, but equally as convenient um, at the operator level, um, I think we could only stand to, to explode in, um, 
in business. And and there are people out there doing it, but it takes a concerted effort for sure. So I have a I have my own personalized theory, and it's it, it's not uh, it, it's my own. You know, I don't represent any companies with it. But I I look at it this way: the boom of casual dining that occurred in the nineties, you know, into the early two thousand was when parents and their kids and their kids were in all types of sports and they'd pick up all their kids from sports or any activity. The mom and dad didn't want to cook. They ended up at Applebee's, Chili's, Friday's, Bennigan's. They all had the same menu. It was just a different different place, but they wanted the family meal together. And yep. so then what challenged casual dine was all of a sudden that hour for lunch in the workspace started dropping down to 45 minutes and sometimes 30. So here's the fast casual space. They come on to the, to the forefront, and I can leave my office, grab something quick and come back, or eat there quick and come back, hence uh, a Chipotle growing. you know. I think where third party has kicked in now is part, again, of having that family experience and not wanting to cook uh, dad or mom, and then yep. have that uh, experience with the family around the dinner table. So what's fascinating is where we still move to that community of family some way, and uh, we're just seeing that people are paying for that. The best businesses, not just in our industry, the best businesses look out at the world and say, what's changing, right? Or, or what's staying the same in light of all that's changing, and how can we continue to serve that, right? Talk about, uh, talk about the iPhone, right? Talk about Apple, right? They said, you know, Steve Jobs looked in the future and he says, I, I, he wasn't trying to create a phone, famously. He said right. this. So I wasn't trying to create a phone. He wanted to create a pocket computer because he looked out at the future and he says, I think there's going to be a time not too far down the line when people are going to be more connected than they are. They're going to need to be connected every minute of every day. And my people don't think that uh, that our consumers will put another device in their pocket. So I had to simply replace or envelop the device they already had in their pocket. He yeah. didn't want a phone. He just thought people already have phones, so it's an easy thing, right? When, yeah. you, when you look out at those, you know, what they set out to do, it's the, it's the same thing, right? Third-party delivery just made it easy. It was a marketplace, just like Open Table did 30 years ago. Yeah. Open Table became a marketplace. Now that's changing because people are using Google as the search engine, right? It's the most powerful search engine, most trafficked site in the world, and now it can do what we need it to do. Yeah. Um, listen, I've loved this conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. I got five questions I ask everyone on the show. Uh, you down? Can you answer my five I, questions? I am down, Chip. All right, they're super easy. Tell me the last great meal you had. Uh, I had a uh, Kansas City, uh, New York at Fratelli's Steakhouse. Okay, great. So specific. I love it. Uh, what's the last great ho hospitality touch you've had? Great last hospitality touch. Wow. Um, can I come back to that? <laughs> no, you got to answer it. It's a time. It doesn't have to be much. It's uh, the last time you said, man, somebody went the extra mile. Somebody did something that, you know, exceeded my expectations. Somebody like, somebody showed me they cared. Like somebody noticed. Like, like just like a hospitality touch and it can just be a little moment it doesn't have to be that you know i was at the four seasons and they did it's just yeah what's the last what's the last touch you know it's interesting because i'm not one of the 
what's the best last favorite but i would say that it was probably um it, it was probably uh asking or going through global entry last weekend okay and, and first time through global entry and I asked a couple ahead of me how it worked because I hadn't done it before. Yep. And a pilot behind me came up, nicest guy, and said, here's how you do it. It's quite easy. No worries. And, you know, when you think of pilots just coming off an airplane, probably doesn't want to hang with people. That was, a, that was nice. He did a good job. See, I love that. So I'm so glad you stuck with it and you answered the question. All right, uh, third one. If a genie came down and can grant you not uh, three wishes, but just one wish, you get, it's, it's all in, all the eggs are in one basket. So if a genie came down and could grant you one wish as it relates to our industry, what would it be? What would you wish for? Uh, I really would wish that everybody that gets into franchising becomes successful, gains generational wealth, and then allows their family to benefit from that. Love it. Love it. Number four, uh, what would you tell someone who's about to open their very first restaurant? Get a lot of rest, stay committed, and you made the right choice. Great. I love it. All right. Last question. Uh, I want you to tell me about the future of restaurants uh, the way that you see them. I want you to look five years down the line. Tell me what is coming that you think other people may not see coming. If we can get through all this economic crap and political crap, um, you know what? I, I still, Chip, I see it today. I still see the restaurants are going to be flavor-filled. Um, the foods have got to be able to be deconstructed for the consumer. And it's going to be a place that people congregate. Uh, you know, it was um, Dennis Waitley, I think is his name, back in the early 80s wrote a book, uh, Success Comes in Cans, Cannot. And every time he said there was a high tech in, in, uh, introduced to mankind, the pendulum would swing to high touch. And I think one of the things, not to be specific on food flavors uh, and trends of Asian to, um, you know, uh, hibachi, but it, we're still going to have to place to congregate, to socialize. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and I think that's always going to be in the trend of the restaurants. You know, there's that famous quote that, um, that Jeff Bezos gave. It was at some leadership conference a couple of years ago, and I forget which one. Somebody will correct me and find and tell me. Um, but he said, uh, he was asked the question, he said, you know, look five years down the line, and what do you think, you know, what do you think's coming? How do you think about the future and, 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 and you know, changing consumer behavior and all of that? And he sort of gave the same kind of answer you just gave, which I love. And he says, you know, the world's going to change. Progress is happening. All of that, and even Amazon is at the cutting edge of e-commerce and 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 pushing the internet in new directions. He's like, but I spend most of my time thinking about what's not going to change. And he says, and that's the thing that helps me guide Amazon into the future. He says the three things that I don't think will ever change is that consumers want a wide variety of products at a low cost that will get to them quickly. So. I just ha that's my uh, that's my north star. Those three yeah. things, because in my heart of hearts, no matter what changes in the world, I think they're going to want a wide variety of products uh, at a really low cost. They can get to them quickly, and that tells us where we need to go. So, uh, yeah. I love that you you very much reminded me of that there. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Listen, Mark, I appreciate your time. Um, 
do me a favor before I let you go. Tell people where they can go to learn more about you and the brand. Uh, you can uh, go to zorability.com and uh, or go on LinkedIn to find uh, under Mark Liso to find uh, more about my uh, Vitae. But uh, I, I think the Zorability page really is is a lot of what we talked about uh, today. Great. I appreciate that. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Uh, all the best to you. Chip, it's, it's been enjoyable. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. So once again, I got to thank Mark for taking time out of his day to sit and chat with us. Tons of information in this week's episode. Hope you got a lot out of it. One final reminder, if you're interested in learning more about my P3 Mastermind, go schedule a free call. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. The call's absolutely free. It's a 30-minute strategy session where we get to learn more about you. You get to learn more about the program, and we'll see if it's a good fit. Visit, again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. I appreciate you being here, and I will see you next time.